0: Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast, World Superbike special from Argentina. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie on the ground here in San Juan. And uh, it's been a pretty action-packed weekend so far, so plenty to get through this weekend. But uh, Gordo, we'll go straight into it because we've got a pretty action-packed show here. We've got an interview with Jonathan Ray at the end, about 25 minutes with Jonathan just talking his way through the season. But uh, we'll get to that later. We'll get to the the big things now. And obviously, Gordo, you're the only journalist that's actually here on the ground in Argentina. You're the man that's able to get nuggets of information that uh, no one else is able to get.
1: So what have you heard and what do you understand? Uh, well, it's been uh, probably one of the most disruptive races that I've been to, maybe since Monza all these years ago in the wet. Um, we arrived here in the track uh, wasn't ready. Um, it was too dirty. The, the asphalt had been laid too soon towards the event um, to let it season in, um, there hasn't been any action on the track um, before we got here. Uh, all these things have to happen to give you a consistent racetrack in any circumstances the other thing here is that this racetrack like Qatar is in the desert it's in the high desert here um, and therefore there's always stuff blowing on the track. Um, so it's been an incredibly complicated arrival here. I don't really know why the the systems weren't put in place and didn't work to make sure we got here especially after last year's problems but uh, it's quite amazing to to see people's take on it uh, when they're not here and not talking to all the people who are actually involved uh, and the other thing is even here people have got vastly different opinions some people say the asphalt itself that they relayed was no good and other people who have got great experience in these things have just told me this morning that the asphalt and the job they did of the new sections is actually really good it's just been done far too close to the event and what's the
0: timeline that, as you understand that, Gord, obviously we've come here this weekend, the riders have had Thursday, they've seen the track. Friday we saw the riders try and clean as much of the track as possible. On Saturday morning, the track's actually in pretty good shape. We saw really fast lap times riders saying the grip level was good. They were able to try and work on their bike setups. But the biggest issue seems to be the track temperature. And as that's increased and we've had over 60 degrees track temperature, it's very difficult for any asphalt to be able to deal with that and that seems to be the, the biggest issue uh,
1: I think really the biggest problem is that the cool temperatures mask the problem, I don't think it's kind of okay, I just think it's it's more reasonable uh, it's, the line is certainly the, the, the racing line, the clean line or clean airline uh, is certainly a lot more usable, uh, it doesn't help when you want to go offline and try and pass so I think that certainly it's worse and much worse In warmer conditions which is why on the first day we expected there to be a better in the second session when lots more bikes had been out there's two other classes here as well as the World superbike and supersport classes we expected to get better it was actually worse on friday afternoon and yesterday we were slower in the afternoon than we were yesterday morning when we were almost at the same pace in a single lap as we were in previous uh, last year's meeting, so it, its temperature is a big deal, but it doesn't. It's only a, a modifier to an inherent problem uh, that shouldn't really have uh, appeared when we arrived here for a world championship motorcycle race.
0: Yeah, you've talked to the riders that didn't start the race and the riders that did start the race, and what was the general feeling?
1: Uh, well, we could be here all day, but the riders that didn't ride partly was a safety issue, maybe mostly was a safety issue, Uh, they also have many other things which boil down to this has happened again at this racetrack and it's not the first time I've gone to a racetrack over the years and it not be ready. Some of them also had an element of taking a stand to say look enough, we're not doing this again, we were promised this would be fixed for this year and it wasn't and in the conditions that we had yesterday they didn't think it was acceptable to ride. The riders who did ride, some of them were Uh, Persuaded to ride They really didn't want to Some of them Didn't want to ride And did ride Because of the Championship position Some of them Took a a Balance on the risk Of Okay it's not ideal But uh, You can have a wet track You can have a half wet track You can You got flag to flag here Where you you decide When you think It's too slippy I must come in On slick tyres and a damp track So It's a very complicated issue that isn't simple. The only simple issue is that people shouldn't be having to make these choices on a weekend in an event of this status
0: and uh, sorry, apologies about the noise in the background. We've got uh, one of the warm-ups going on, and uh, this is one of the rare times during the course of the weekend where we're able to catch Gordo, and obviously flat out all the way through the weekend with everyone in the yard catching up with Gordo. But uh, for you, what do you think is the the solution? It's a very complicated question. It's a very complicated answer that's going to be needed for, it, but. For you, you've been in this championship for pretty much the last 25, 30 years. You've seen pretty much anything there is to see. 500 Grand Prix was the same for you. So what do you think is the solution for us?
1: The solution is there has to be a system in place and a run-up to an event like that. Uh, before a homologation is issued, there has to be a, an agreed time frame of when things are done, when works are done, allowing for the fact that we are in South America. They've just come out their winter. So it probably wasn't feasible to do this work three months ago, which means it should have been done nine months ago. It should have been maybe done the Monday after we left. They should have started on the resurface and then get some track action on it. The fact that this is, seems to be a turnkey racetrack, where last year we came for World Superbike, everybody left, closed the doors, and they, apparently they do not have any events here at all. There's no bikes going round, there's no cars going round, the, the track's not being rubbered in, as virtually every other track is whether it's track days or or proper events so there has to be a better system of checking that everything's ready before we go 2,000 or so people turned up workers here from the riders to the the guys that do the TV Um, and then tens of thousands of fans and you get good fans here and they love it and we there should be a system in place to make sure that any race track we go to is ready and not the not taking last minute emergency Uh, action to try and make it usable not good, not level of world championship, just usable so the system is wrong the system has failed miserably
0: and obviously for the riders Gordo you've talked to them for years you understand that the only thing they want to do is to get out and race you see an awful lot on social media after an event like this where uh, riders get criticised for not going out you you see an awful lot of I remember whenever I was racing club racing and there'd be you know this that and the other but for the riders all they want to do is go out and race all they want to do is to be able to do what they do better than anyone else and they weren't feeling that they could do that yesterday
1: all the riders want to race that's who they are that's their job they are professional motorcycle racers there isn't a single person who can do that that isn't braver than 99 percent of the population so you hear some people saying oh they're spineless." are really you know i mean they, they they take risks that me and you just don't find acceptable in their day-to-day living in their job um i can't understand that people would criticize people for uh, not wanting to ride for safety grounds Especially at this level We've got so much work done Over the past few decades In terms of safety In every regard From barriers To track surfaces To the special types of paint You have to use So that you've got Basically the same grip As you do on the tarmac As you do on the If you go six inches Onto the paint That all these things Have been done This work has been done Over the years And the riders Just want to ride All the riders here Want to ride And even the guys That didn't ride yesterday Are going to ride today They really wanted to ride yesterday They just felt they couldn't some riders felt they could. That's where, That's the real situation.
0: Yeah, and there was a lot of discussion about options that were being tabled and being put across by the riders. The biggest one being that most of the riders did just want to push the races back onto the Sunday, just like what we had at Assam when we had the track conditions where we had the snowstorm on the Saturday, just before race two, before race one. But unfortunately for those riders that did sit out, they just end up with one race where they don't get to get out there and go
1: that to me could have been a solution uh, especially given that the weather forecast is good enough now that you can tell you're going to have a cooler day today than you did yesterday and that has transpired. Um, if that's the reality of the racetrack and it's, it is a temperature based thing that makes it better and those riders that couldn't feel, feel they couldn't ride yesterday are happier to do it today then okay. That Why didn't we just have two races today? The precedent's been set as you say we've done it already this year. when when you're trying to cram three races in sometimes you have to lose one to make sure you get two good ones Um, and yeah to me that was an option maybe it was the best option
0: What about in terms of for the rest of the weekend now how do the riders approach a lot cooler here on the Sunday it's going to be where they should be able to have uh, much more grip out in track and uh, we should be able to see two great races here
1: Hopefully um, it would be better if the track was in in perfect condition because then we would almost be guaranteed Uh, the fact that we've lost a bit of uh, regular or, or normal track time because we're on a one-line track. If the track, if the line's a bit wider today, if there's more passing opportunities today, we're back in a situation that made race one good the last time uh, and that very few people had a lot of practice so we could actually see really good races because all the teams that have got the experts to make their bike better by race day maybe haven't quite now because they're still working on it and they're not quite sure the conditions are going to be and what tyre to use Um, so we could see some great racing today uh, simply because of a change in in in, uh, climatic conditions
0: for everyone sitting at home listening to this where are they able to find your work from this weekend Gordo just be able to get fully up to date where was able to find your work from this week just be able to get fully up to date
1: Uh, I work for Bike Sport News I do some stuff for Speed Week in Germany if we have any German friends or German speaking friends there and I will be uh, sending my stuff out as usual to Cycle News and Australian Motorcycle News
0: Okay. Okay. well when we look back at... uh What we saw in Magni Core, because we'll move on to talk about the race now for the rest of this weekend. What we saw in Magni Core was Top Rack Rides finally getting on to that uh, top step of the podium and uh, he's obviously had big news over the course of the last couple of weeks, confirmed that he's going to go to Yamaha. That's obviously been one of the worst kept secrets in the paddock for a while. But we've seen Top Rack confirmed to Yamaha, we've seen Lowe's confirmed to Kawasaki, we've seen a couple of other riders that seem like it's a done deal. The likes of Caracusulo and Girl off to GRT. It, we're really starting to see the rider market start to take some shape.
1: Yes, finally. Um and it's although we kind of knew what's going to happen at the end of the day it's our jobs to try and find out what happens before it's announced that's part of our jobs so thankfully these, uh, these are the worst kept secrets because somebody somewhere has uh, found them out before they should have um, but now that things have actually been signed and settled even though some of the riders can't talk because they're still under contract to the current uh, team uh, it's it's actually shaping up to be a really exciting season and that's just in terms of rider movement never mind any new bikes that are coming in or anything else um, i think it's any is good change in racing maybe not for the person involved but for the people looking from outside one there's more to talk about two you always end up surprised someone's more competitive or less competitive than you expect them to be change is good in racing there's nothing worse than the same thing all the time that's why people get a little bit jaded by it when you get a change when you make any change whether it's technical tire but especially riders because the ultimate performance and the ultimate results are determined by the rider. Everything else is a preamble. It's a build-up.
0: Obviously, for Top Rack, like I, I know that I first found out about Top Rack to Yamaha over at the Suzuki Eight Hours, And as far as I was aware, that deal was pretty much signed in Japan. It's taken a long time for it to be announced. Like, What's the what's the reasoning behind that, do you think?
1: Um, I think... Uh, I don't actually know because I think it's an emotional decision and therefore that's something that is very difficult to uh, to get people's real motivations for but I think there was an element that he wasn't very happy they didn't actually get to ride the new hour I think there was also the, the possibility of change if he goes to Yamaha he could be the number one Yamaha guy if he say he did sign for KRT, he would be behind Jonathan maybe not in the, the races but in terms of the, the build up even somebody like Jonathan had to kind of Forced his way through in the first year in KRT because they had their world champion and their number one rider. Uh, not saying Jonathan was thought of as a number two, but he had to kind of prove himself inside the team and inside the the, the Kawasaki world in his first year. So maybe that would have been that was seen as too difficult for Topper. Maybe somebody looked at a, there's maybe more future in Yamaha. But we touched on it before, a couple of races ago, maybe. Who's the number one Yamaha rider? Well, next year it might be Toprak. If you look at his recent performances, he's got every chance of being the number one guy by season end.
0: And uh, you're talking there about the emotion that comes into making decisions like that. I know from when you talk to people, not so much top rack, but people around top rack, that uh, one of the big things for him is that he needs the support of a team. Yes. And when he went to the Suzuka tests, he didn't seem to feel like he was part of KOT. He was still a Pachetti rider. He didn't feel like he was as involved as he expected or he wanted to be. And that obviously played a big role for him and in his decision making as well.
1: I guess so. I mean, I wasn't there, I didn't see that element. I'd hate to say something that uh, because I wasn't there I I would get wrong or misunderstand Um, but yes I do think in this case we all thought for most of the year he was going to join the big team in Kawasaki and then he didn't so there's got to be an underlying reason for that that isn't just a logical one
0: yeah, when Leon Haslam was signed by Kawasaki for this year, last year we were all told it's a one-year contract, and the immediate understanding for pretty much everyone in the paddock was that's a one-year deal so that Top Rack can learn a bit more at Pachetti and then move to KRT for the 2020 season. Obviously, Haslam's come in. He's been a British champion for Kawasaki. He's had a lot of success for them for three years in BSB. He's ridden well for them on his wild cards and superbikes. on the Pachetti. He was able to finish on the podium. He's been able to be good on the uh, KRT bike with six or seven podiums this season. Fortunately for Haslam, even though he wasn't really wanted by KRT initially, he's actually done a pretty decent job, but finds himself that uh, probably for KRT's eyes, at his stage of his career, he's not going to be the rider that you can replace Johnny with. He's not going to be the rider that can keep winning for Kawasaki for five, six years. So they're still obviously on the look for that. They're going to try their luck with Alex Lowe's next year.
1: I think there's a, a lot of things at play with the, 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 the season that Leon's had. And I think that because it's always played down by the riders and the teams and so on, I think the fact that he's always been carrying some kind of injury or recovering from some kind of surgery, if you're not 100% fit, this makes this job 100 times harder. He's also taken a step up in in terms of the the riders he's got to ride against and the technology he's got to adapt to and grow with after three years of being away from it with the odd wildcard ride. Um, That's not easy to do. Uh, British champion Alex Low came here and, and spent at least two years fighting against the electronics. Josh Brooks came here and fe- spent a year fighting against the electronics. Um, you have to, you have to make friends with the electronics, and you have to start trusting it. And you have to, and very importantly, you have to start getting the, the the background guys and the rider have to start thinking the same way about it. And I'm not sure that happened there. It seems to be. He's constantly talked about the same problem of entering corners uh, and having trouble turning into corners and, and uh, getting the, the the bike to be stable enough going into corners to let him ride the way he wants to ride. That It just hasn't meshed together. Why? Only they know because they'll never tell anybody. Yeah. For real.
0: And obviously within... Kawasaki we've seen in the past that both sides of that garage have struggled to work with each other and that can be an issue as well at times for a rider coming into a new situation but uh, for Haslam it would be interesting to see where he ends up for next year. A lot of talks saying that he could be at Honda for next year or he could be back in BSB for Paul Bird on a Ducati so he is going to have good options available to him it's just a case of whichever one he ends up getting.
1: Yes I think his, his better options are going to be in, uh, in BSB but well, there's still quite a few good rides here that haven't been allocated. There's still people putting budgets together. Um, that When all those things work out, do we still know exactly what Honda are doing? No. And I don't know if some other people should know. Now,
0: the one thing about Honda is that uh, everything's up in the air because... The rumor here in Argentina is that the vast majority of the people inside the team this year have been told that they're not going to be with the team next year. That Alberto Pucci is going to come in and bring in an awful lot of his Spanish Academy engineers that he's trained up through the CEV Championship or through Moto 3, Moto 2 Championships, and he's going to bring them across the Superbike Championship to run that team and to look after everything. So there is going to be a lot of change there. And this year has always been said to be a learning year, but who's going to actually get the benefit of that learning it's going to be another group of engineers that come in and that's where it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Marawaki for next year because the plan for them is that they stay on the grid next year could be with someone like Takahashi coming onto that bike to be surrounded by a Japanese team he's quite He's quite uh, shy He's struggled to Make a transition To international racing In the past And he wants to be Surrounded by Japanese engineers So Murawaki would make Some sense for him
1: Yes um, And it would be good To see four Hondas On the grid next year At least um, And also That was a new team This year it's, There's nothing worse Than seeing a team Arriving and doing one year Especially if they've got A three year A five year plan So it would be great If they could retain uh, We also need A Japanese rider here We need Honda to get us back to a racetrack in Japan. This championship needs to go to Asia and we're better than the, the place that makes the motorcycles. Uh, there there would be a lot of benefits to having a, a split Honda effort, the mega factory one, and then the, the other one. We need to have, in my opinion, at least four of every bike on, in, in this, on the grid. That has to be, if I was the strategist behind it all, that's what I would be doing. You would have the factory one and then the satellite one, especially now so many of the materials and and components are shared and by regulation have to be shared, have to be common. So it's easier for the factories to have a second team. They're just making four of everything. The four ECUs programmed the same, but it's just easier for them as well. And uh, one of the
0: things that could change with that is Kiefer Racing could be coming here and uh, a lot of talk saying that they could be running the BMW which puts you up to four BMWs on the grid, it could open a door for Cortesia, Ryderberg or two German riders to stay on the grid next year as well
1: Yes, uh, we need to have a, a spread of nationalities, there are too many British riders here but the reason for that is that there's lots of good British riders, it's like Spanish riders in MotoGP, there's lots of them why would you stop them going and, and doing the thing but keep having someone don't control both championships and they always said that they would have a, a, a way where people can move up the ladder or across between the two championships. And if the German team wants to come here, if that's better for their strategy now, then that, 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 that overall strategy would be seen to be working. So it's also important for that, not just the nationality thing, that maybe other guys would do it. If it's not happening for them there, they can come here. In general, this is more open for technology for everything this is an open championship especially given the way the regulations are now you know you can come here on almost any bike and be competitive if you've got a good team and a good rider
0: and uh, one rider that is on a Honda at the minute that isn't proven to be too competitive Leon Leon Camier and uh, Camier being linked with rides for next year it looks like he could be on a Barney
1: Ducati uh, I would say that's that's pretty much going to happen whether he signed or not uh, but I think that's that seems to be the way and that would be great partly because he's a big tall chap and because of that he's much heavier than the average rider and that ducati is the fastest bike here the most powerful bike here the one with the biggest punch out of corners and any bike he's ridden on he's, he's he's not had that relative to the other guys that might be the missing link that lets leon reach the, the heights that he, we know he can
0: do you think would any manufacturer ever have a taller trio of riders than Chaz davis scott riding and leon Camier?
1: It would think
0: making an endurance bike a lot easier, three, six
1: footers. Well, not unless Terry Reimer's got two brothers. Uh, no, that's, that's pretty tall, but hey, you know, the one thing you can't uh, determine is the riser's physique. But they can overcome it. The best way to do that is to have it on a, a, a bike that's got a lot of power, but especially a lot of pull. You're accelerating, I won't get into the physics of it, but the, the heavier you are, the more power you need to accelerate. Top speed you can reach the same but you need to get that oomph out of corners with a, a bigger engine and there's no bigger engine in this paddock now maybe Honda will change it next year but there's no bigger engine than the Ducati Yeah,
0: because we did see a perfect illustration of that in race one here in Argentina when Alvaro Bautista made a bit of a mess at turn six and seven yes. comes on to the back straight with no momentum he's a lot slower on the exit than Jonathan Ray, Ray gets through and then as you click through the gears that Ducati's already long past him by the time he gets the braking zone yeah
1: and I mean it's partly the, the bike but also when you think I don't know, Alvaro has 55, 56 kilos, that's nothing, you know, so part of his performance this year genuinely is the fact he's so small. Yeah, he's, he's, he's as, a little
0: guy same as the pedroza effect for years yeah, exactly but when you look at some of the other news that we could see pacchetti is one of the interesting seats as far as i understand haslam has an offer on the table from kawasaki to go to Pachetti, and that has to be signed and agreed by this weekend so it looks unlikely to happen so Pachetti's going to be on the lookout for a new sponsor obviously with uh, turkish money in all likelihood leaving the team with uh, top rack it's going to need a new sponsor and a new rider who do you see in the frame for that ride
1: Uh, I think the biggest challenge is money, uh, and that might determine who gets on the the bike finally, if they can bring some money. Um, There are a few options there, uh, but I I don't actually know if any of them are realistic unless there is actually a a team guaranteed with a budget and the support to, to be here next year. And that's the, the, the big question for me for Kawasaki is how much money do you give Pacetti to keep them going? Look at what they've done this year. Yes, with Toprack, but it shows what a, a, a satellite team, a side team that doesn't use actually every single component, they don't have the same engine spec, etc. can do. It just shows what can be done. Um, and I think, if I remember correctly, I think Toprack and Pacetti have had eight, races consecutive on the podium at least once every single time. Okay. I mean, that's factory level. That is factory level results. So half of that's obviously the rider and half of that's the team. So there's a really good team there, but they they, 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 they need a good rider to follow up from what Toprak's done. But their biggest issue is finance. And I think that's going to determine who the riders are going to be.
0: Yeah, I've had, heard a few rumours about who's going to be going in to join the team. Obviously, Phil Maron's going to move with Top Rack to be a crew chief, yeah, and it cool. looks like a, a fairly well-regarded crew chief is going to come into Pichetti, from what I understand. So that's going to be interesting that they are willing to make that sort of investment. It shows that they've got a lot of confidence that things will be in stream for next year. But there's a few riders that can bring a budget if it comes to that. There's a few few riders being linked with Supersport rides, taking a lot of money, the likes of Andrea Locatelli, that was uh, linked with, with a, a ride in that championship and uh, the money that he was apparently brings to the table a lot higher than what you usually expect for a super sport rider so it suddenly made some people think that maybe he's actually going to be in line maybe to move on to a super bike from the Moto2 class a couple of other interesting little tidbits that we're hearing around the paddock this weekend that um, Arlac obviously had a big falling out with Kawasaki they are blaming the equipment for bad results obviously this being a really tough weekend for Taddy Mercado he's not going to stay with that team next year it looks like he's going to the Italian championship probably with Barney so it could free up Aralac to replace him with someone else, replace Kawasaki with another manufacturer. Rinaldi's going around saying that he's going to be on a Ducati next year. And uh, it could be that Aralac end up switching on to a Ducati to bring Rinaldi.
1: That's very possible. Um, again, they've got to make the decision of what they really want to do. Because uh, it's pretty much run by paid for by one company, one person. Uh, if he's happy to continue, then then that's what they'll, they'll probably, they will will almost certainly change manufacturers but at the moment and I spoke to the team manager the other day uh, they don't have anything guaranteed for next year at all um, but what I think they might do or might try and do and I think a few other teams might try and do next year in fact I know we're going to try and do next year is maybe do only the European rounds because of budgets because of because uh, of just a necessity they, they, they could put a European season together but they couldn't put a full season together which is unfortunate but that's the reality of the modern world where uh, the teams don't get money from the organisers here as they do in MotoGP someone has to pay for it um, and if it means that the grid at most of the races is well into the 20s I think the organisers would accept that they wouldn't want it they want everybody to do all the rounds but I've heard more than one team is thinking about doing just the European rounds next year.
0: Yeah, we saw that uh, Ronaldi in his rookie season with the Aruba Junior team did that, so maybe an option there. We also saw yesterday confirmed that Manuel Gonzalez, the Supersport 300 champion, is going to move up to the Supersport class on uh, the same team as he's with at the moment, so Kawasaki with the Park and Go squad, but uh, Gonzalez has been really impressive through this year. I was actually talking to Jonathan Ray about him, and Ray said that if he was ever looking to run a team, or if he was running a team at the minute, he'd be the first rider that he'd hire, so speaks very highly of him, says that uh, very intelligent on the bike, very fast and seems to learn really quickly
1: What he's done this year is quite amazing, Uh, that class is so difficult just because even if you do nothing wrong you could get swamped by six riders and he always seems to be one of the guys that's up the front and he's won won races really quite confidently Uh, he's clearly a huge talent again, if there's a system in place to go 300 600,000 then this is what should happen my opinion every year the champion should be given a ride, a proper ride. The organisers should see it so that people see a path. If I win, I know I can keep progressing. There should be a, system, a formal system like that, but if it's an informal system and it's rewards based in its own way, that's the way racing should be. Perform, grow, move on. Perform, grow, move on. And that is so that's shown that the system that was brought in by Donna with the 300s, which is controversial in some, some ways and logical in other ways is actually working
0: and uh, obviously as well Gordo there's some other rumours going around in the Supersport paddock it looks like quite a few riders changing teams Krumenacker is talking to MV Augusta is an option for next year he obviously wants to be paid for next year because for Krumenacker he's always had to find a budget he's always had to find a way to help fund his racing now he's in position to win a world championship and he's finally said you know enough's enough I want to be able to get paid MV one of the few teams in the Supersport paddock that will pay a decent wage
1: yes and I can totally understand how how can a guy that's fighting for the championship this year not get paid this is one of the great uh, things that maybe not a lot of people understand uh, if they're not in the paddock and inside and understanding the financial side of it it's astonishing how many riders either aren't paid at all or have to bring money from a private sponsor to to even get a a, a shot on the grid and it's not bad riders necessarily some really good riders have to bring money or else they don't get the the, A-Ride Never mind a better ride. So, I've always been a big advocate that the riders should be paid a salary by Donna or the organisers or the FIM that is found and given by the team or the sponsors, but it's given to the organisers and it goes direct to the riders. There should be a minimum wage in this paddock if you want to be regarded as a professional sport. I've always said it, and that gets away from riders buying rides. Uh, that, to me that's the way I would do it is that the rider's guaranteed to get a salary and his expenses paid because that's what you would expect it's a world championship level race
0: Yeah, obviously has been uh, fairly well discussed through the paddock over the course of this year especially with Krumenacker and Karakasulo we've seen two riders there that Krumenacker has to bring a lot of money Karakasulo helps bring some sponsors, Pata and things like that, as an Italian rider, but you haven't really seen where he's had to bring in big personal sponsors to the table, whereas Krumenacker, he brings his leather company, he brings a lot of money in from Switzerland, and it's rumoured that to replace Krumenacker and Caracasudo next year, if GRT do go elsewhere, that they're looking at the likes of riders that are going to bring in upwards of half a million to the team so it shows just how much of a budget Krumenacker has had to find over the years and that's as a world class rider it's tough for riders whenever that happens but hopefully for Krumenacker he gets an option for next year we've seen little bits of rumours in and around the paddock this weekend that the likes of Akubo who Everyone knows does have some good benefactors over in Japan that have helped fund his career. He might be out of a ride for next year. It looks like Fellini and a couple of other riders that are in the paddock at the moment can try and uh, just bring some of their sponsors to the table. And when you talk to team managers, they're very open about it. They just look at it and they say, "Well, if we've got riders that are all at relatively the same level, why wouldn't you take the rider that brings the most money to the the team?"
1: Yes, and it's been that way for a while, and some teams actually find a lot of their budget every year from that, they have to rely on the rider finding sponsorship, it's not that the rider himself is paying, it's the rider sponsors or as you say benefactors or long time supporters that find the money to do that um, I'd, I mean I'd, I just don't agree with it I think it's wrong, but we also live in a real financial world post the crash all the big sponsors have gone to MotoGP, you know everybody's got their own national championships, they take their own national budgets, it's difficult to get national money to come internationally so those riders that do get that are always going to be at an advantage in terms of getting a ride but I think the difference nowadays is that some of those riders are very very good, it used to be it would be a rider who wasn't necessarily the best, so the team would pick a rider for go and a rider for dough, now sometimes you've got a rider with go who needs to bring the do.
0: It's an interesting one because when you look at it over the years, I remember whenever I was a kid and I'd watched like Formula One or something like that and Pedro Danez was a Brazilian rider. He brought Parmalat to the table and he was able to buy his way into Formula One and then suddenly he developed into being quite a good driver and uh, had to get a bit of respect from everyone for being able to do a solid job. And then over the next 10 years, you looked at how that sort of changed and Fernando Alonso was the best driver on the grid. He was incredible. He was a double world champion. Everyone said like he's the man to beat. He brought Santander and a hundred million to teams, but he wasn't a paid driver. Because it wasn't viewed that uh, he was bringing all this money to the table. It's always like, it's not a check that goes on the table from the driver or the rider. It's just, as you said, Gordo, taking those those sponsors and uh, the support to them. But uh, as you said as well, Gordo, we do live in a different financial times now, a different financial world. You even have to try and clean up your language to come onto a podcast. Be able to coins. Uh,
1: I'm amazed I can I'm amazed we haven't been pinged
0: already. We've done all right, like, to be quite honest. We've, we've managed to avoid being too Irish or too Scotch. But, what, um, um, allegedly. Well, enough of the time anyway to make it half half all right. But uh, when you look at um, the challenges that teams face to raise that money, Gordo, it does get tougher and tougher for them. And uh, that's where, like, for the likes of Kiefer saying that they're going to come to World Superbikes, they were asked, like, what sort of budget do you need to raise? And they said the same budget as what we run in Moto2. If we can do that, we can race in uh, World Superbikes. Kiefer not always... Uh, known for always just hiring a rider just that brings in a budget with them they want to try and hire the best riders possible and uh, that could as I said earlier offer some good opportunities to some of the riders that are without rides because there is plenty of them right now like Sajabi Fares he's been linked with the Tenkade ride but nothing nothing confirmed at this stage
1: nothing's confirmed for uh, Tenkade I think because of uh, sponsorship they're still either finalising the deal or they they keep saying they've got a nice new sponsor coming and let's hope they do Um, but until they get the budget to run two riders, guaranteed, there's no point signing a second rider. And, and there's no point in a rider signing if he's not 100%. But getting Javi back over here would be fantastic. And you know, clearly, that bike is good for anybody. But inside Tinkata, going their own way, it would be even more interesting. And two riders' input, that's important as well. When you've got one rider, you can develop a bike for one rider. If you've got two riders, if both of them are going fast you know they're doing everything right not just some things right
0: and uh, just uh, we're half an hour into the show now we've got a a long interview with Jonathan Ray coming up so we'll be queuing that up in just a moment but uh, Gordo now that JR has won the championship how do you assess his season before we hear from the champion
1: quite unbelievable Uh, the turnaround is the most impressive one I can ever remember Um, he's he's won by consistency but consistency at a level that most people can't reach even once and that's the difference That's just, if you want to know what the secret is their consistency is happening at a level which is doing-esque in the days when he was racing in MotoGP it's just every week, no mistakes all the time it, it, it's quite astonishing his drive to win uh, is, is I think unmatched I think his ability to deal with any circumstance that comes along, technical or otherwise, because his bikes changed every year he's been in Kawasaki, sometimes suiting him, sometimes going away from him, uh, sometimes a little and sometimes a lot, and him and the guys around him and Kawasaki have just managed to find a way to, on Sunday, allow him to then go and do his thing, and his thing is just better than anybody else's thing, because he does it all the time, it's, it's why he's won. Um, and it's, it's quite amazing I also think and this is just my own little personal opinion I think all the years of not winning and being on bikes that weren't quite good enough and all the injuries he's had he's had very significant injuries I think all that when you get the chance to win and then a taste for it it means that that's why he's carried on doing it normally by now riders are bored they've won three four championships and then something goes wrong and one little thing spirals off or they, they earn more money or you know, something And it seems that uh, from the outside, I'm not Jonathan, but from outside looking, his life is getting more stable, not less. He's back home living in Northern Ireland again. You know, his platform is even more firm now than it was before, despite all the stuff that happened in the first third of the year, which was just unprecedented. Another rider comes in, destroys it, and yet Jonathan and his guys just sit in the background, doing the best they can, and as soon as it started going wrong for the other guy, They were able to pounce, not by doing anything different than you, but their level performance is so high, it took them above everybody else. Every track they were capable of, they won every race virtually
0: and we've seen it all the way through the season Gordo that the only real mistake we actually saw from Ray was that superpole race in Imola where he crashed somehow managed to roll out of it and then remount and finish I think in the top five that day other than that we saw the clash with Alex Lowes at the last corner in Herat, pushed to the back of the grid as a penalty for the next race still finished fourth in it and then uh in uh, race two was, was able to get back onto the podium all the way through the season he's basically had a year where he's been on the podium those three races in Horeth had the chance of being on the podium obviously the penalty meant for the Super Bowl race he didn't but other than the mistake in Imola and that uh, Hereth moment he really has been pretty much unstoppable or at least he's uh, been able to get the most out of himself on every day
1: and I think the reason he can do that is that he's got a bike under him that gives him the, all of itself all the time it's not the most radical bike uh, people keep talking about Kawasaki spending MotoGP money which is news to them and news to everybody that, that has got any idea of the real situation uh, they might invest a lot of money I think Ducati invest a lot of money I think Yamaha invest a lot of money but that bike is not the most radical bike here uh, as a base bike you have to run the base of the bike um, but what they've done is refined it and given him a package you can use in every corner, on every track. If you want to improve that Kawasaki, you'd give it the same horsepower as a Ducati. If you, but the the basic package, the main thing is to give the rider someone that he's utterly confident on, that's fast enough, and that he knows is going to be set up well when it comes to racing. And there's no gaps. I've said that a million times. There's no gaps and no holes, from top to bottom and side to side. And that team or that rider that you can key into there's no i don't see any obvious weaknesses i think the biggest thing they might find in the near future is the fact that the bike is just an old architecture engine bike and when a honda comes along if the ducati's tamed a bit more next year that that, that it might just run out of puff literally
0: well before we hear from jonathan i didn't really want to talk too much about lowes when we were talking about the rider moves just to leave it for when we're talking about Ray because is being teammates Jonathan Ray the easiest job in the paddock or the most difficult job in the paddock it's the most difficult because Johnny has shown consistency five titles in a row but is it easy as well because the expectation is that you
1: can't beat this guy um, The I think it's both those things I think for, for different reasons I think it's the easiest job in the world because you've obviously got a bike which can do what it do, can win the world championship Year after year, you've also got on the other side of the garage from Jonathan, uh, a crew chief and a crew that have been used to winning the World Championship and competing for it. Uh, it's not been that way the last few years of Sykes and it wasn't quite this way that way for Leon either. But you are walking into the World Championship team in a good package. I can't imagine that they won't give him every opportunity to try and beat Jonathan. I can't see to. I can't see there being a. A technical favourites thing. I just don't see that, and it's also more difficult now. I think it's the the best place to be, because you can then measure yourself as a rider, as you can then measure yourself against the best rider, and you know if you're fifth and he's winning, it's you, or your setup, or your something you can affect, can then take you to, to where you are. Uh, Jonathan is obviously a very um, he's a very quiet spoken guy, etc. But he understands the game very well. I think. Uh, he he he's very good at uh subtle mind games. Uh but he's also a good guy. You know, he he's he, he gets on well with Leon. Um how Alex and him get on now after Hareth, don't know. Um but yes, it's always difficult to be a teammate to the number one. And as all and riders whoever they are, the first rule is always beat your teammate. So Jonathan's gonna make sure that he beats his teammate as well. So I think the fascination is we only know the answer to that question at the end of the year, but I think both things can exist side by side, the best thing and the worst thing. It's also a challenge for Louis. He's now got to step up and show what can be done in the championship winning bike. The Yamaha's still a question mark. The Kawasaki is not a question mark. Kawasaki is capable of winning the world championship for the last five years.
0: Yeah, they've been able to show themselves for the last best part of 10 years as being the best team in the paddock. They've been able to win championships with Sykes, could have easily won three championships with Sykes these five with Jonathan Ray. So they have shown themselves to be that level within the team and that's something we talk about with Jonathan Ray as well. So we'll leave you with Jonathan as uh, he talks about the season he's had he talks about his standing within uh, world SBK history and a couple of other tidbits through it it's been about 20 minutes so there's lots of good information from Jonathan so myself Steve English and Gordon Ritchie will uh, leave you from Argentina with the words of a now five times world champion Jonathan Ray joining us on the podcast and uh, Johnny myself and Gordo have just been talking about you winning the championship but uh, this has been a crazy year really yeah, you know I
2: never really seen a turnaround like it because um, of course every season I've been going to in the last few years you you target to win the championship but honestly after four rounds it was, certainly that was a big uh, dream. Um, there was sort of no, we couldn't see any weakness in the Alvaro Ducati package really. In fact we came up against the strongest package I've ever faced and what um, Assen was, you know, a real moment where I felt like I aimed. That was one of the tracks that we could go to and you know, pick up some wins. And when that didn't happen, our heads dropped a little. But it was we got to Imola and managed to survive there with some wins. Albeit one of the races were cancelled due to weather. But um, just getting that little bit of a gasp of air, if you like, if you're drowning, was enough to kind of compose ourselves and think, like right, well, we can aim for some results in the
0: year.
1: Me.
0: Obviously, you mentioned Assen and Imola. Two rounds where there were races cancelled. But uh, did it feel like everything was conspiring against you at a certain point this year? Not really. I
2: mean, we never looked at it like that. I, I certainly felt like in Phillip Island when um, you firstly in the Winter Test we could see how strong the new Ducati was. And whilst they never really showed out-and-out pace in the winter, when we got to Phillip Island going down that front straight and then we moved on to Thailand, it was like we were bracing ourselves for a bit of a pacing because it's really hard in motorcycle racing when when you're losing that much in the straight like we were in Thailand to make that up in the corners and the brakes, you are know, carrying more corner speed and getting a better exit because the mechanical traction of our bike is probably the best out there uh, I feel like stability-wise, our bike's really good, but we lost so much in the acceleration areas that around the lap, it was hard to make that up. But as we've seen, like from track to track, uh, every track has different demands, and the total package, you know, our bike was not bad if we take away the power. So um, the tracks where I felt like we needed to win, we we tried to maximise, and then you know, Alvaro made a series of mistakes as well, which made. You know, not the sway of the championship easier, but actually managing the championship because, um, I mean, now the, the gap of, I don't know, I think must be 100 and more than 120-something because of the, the remaining races, but if you, if you put, so you give him five race wins against my none, then we're balanced, and that was, you know, say, five full crashes, so it's kind of, I felt like, whilst he threw a lot of the championship away, we did actually stand up and won the races we should and it was just hard in the beginning because even the second places i was riding i had to fight for them second places it wasn't like i was just riding around finishing and that was my strong point the yamahas were super strong at the start of the year and we had to look really deep to you know to challenge
0: obviously you mentioned alvaro's mistakes and in isolation all of his mistakes were quite understandable like this the first one in heret is just a simple mental mistake going in a little bit too hot into term one in misano again you could put that one down to a number of factors you could put it down to the fact we had the wet race for race one you're going into race two with the full fuel load maybe a little bit of inexperience you can look at donnington and crashing in the wet and you know a corner where all the superbike riders knew will be a bit treacherous but that sort of put him in a position when we went to Laguna then where he was just trying to win back bad money after good and three mistakes or two mistakes there that were probably a bit more avoidable. But it all seemed to just rack up on him and you obviously were able just to be relentless and just keep piling on the wins at that stage as well.
2: Well, it's hard to say. I, I didn't know Alvaro really until this year but I had a lot of it, you know inputs from the outside about just keeping the pressure because um the seasons long and to keep believing and whilst at the beginning of the year you couldn't really see that. And um, the mistakes in Misano and Jerez were completely uncalled for really. Um Donington I could see, you know, it's a very, very treacherous part of the track in the wet. It's easy to be caught out there, even you know, series pros get caught out there. But I yeah, just keep doing my thing really and um, it's really hard to sometimes manage from the front because I've been in that position, and when you're when you're chasing, you, sometimes you have nothing to lose. But I've seen a whole different side to Alvaro from the beginning of the year, from the the really smiley guy on TV. Every time the TV went in the garage, he was full of smiles and double hand waves and like like an angelic kid. And then even after the first crash, it was still the same, maintaining that happy-go-lucky self but you know, as soon as he started making a few more he was like a shadow of us you know the beginning of the season and um, you know just you could you could see the, the stress you know on his shoulders and that was that's when we just had to keep relentlessly delivering results every weekend and you know it didn't ha- didn't need him to look at me on the top step of the podium but just to look at me like I'm right there so um, you can't have a bad weekend and I think overall these overall since pretty much uh I think Jerez we've we've outscored him. So um yeah, really really happy to turn the season around like that but uh, it was definitely a little bit of help from his side.
0: You mentioned there's some of the factors that came through the year and you could see that pressure starting to build on him. But I remember yourself and himself did an interview in Lagoon and the two of you sitting side by side. And up until that point in the season, he was talking about the fact that I've taught these superbike riders in new style of riding. I've upped the level in the championship. But in that interview, he was talking about, I'm just a rookie, you know, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And it looked like that was the real moment where, the momentum had really shifted towards you. Is that what you felt as well? To be honest, I didn't analyse it too
2: much. Um, I just tried to keep doing what I was doing. I didn't expect the the Laguna weekend to turn around the way it did. Um, you know, to not score in all three races. Um, that really, really helped my cause in the championship. But, yeah, you know, to go 11 races unbeaten and then to face the challenges it has, I can't understand it. I really can't because... Um I can't understand how you can go to Phillip Island in your first race and a new bike and new championship and mentally be that strong to win races by fifteen seconds to do Thailand pretty much the same, you know, double figure second wins and it was it looked like there was no chance to just have to have a season turn around the way it has. Um you know, I ride with, with him on track, and what he does is very—you know—he's very clinical. He does things in the right way, His, his level is really high. The machine he's on is, looks like it's really hard to dial in. You know, the, the window of setups quite small, but looked like he had it in the window in the beginning, and he had such an engine that he didn't need to be last of the late breakers, or he didn't need to put the bike under too much stress because he had already gained them tenths of a second on the acceleration areas. That yo-yo effect in Thailand, where you know he would be long gone into that turn three, but you know we would still like release the brake and have a go because um, you know our bike lets us do that. But um, yeah, it's, it's really hard. You know, I, I wouldn't want to be in his position because um, yeah, it would be certainly in, in my shoes right now. I wouldn't want to be answering to Gin Rhoda because he <laughs> he would be the toughest guy on me when when I make a mistake. Um, even this year so um, you know, to have a, a catalogue this year has been I'm sure really tough
0: yeah, and obviously um, when you look at what we saw from Alvaro at times through the season like after the first three or four rounds you were quite criticised for saying that you were bringing a knife to a gunfight and then a lot of people seem to put two and two together about the rev changes for Ducati and suddenly you came back to form but that had very little effect, really. Like, the Ducati, we still saw the whole way through the season. If you look at Mizano, the moves he was able to make a you in the pit straight, you never see moves like that. Port de then the start-finish straight. Some of that comes from yeah. his his riding style, but, like, the inherent advantage of that bike seemed to still stay pretty constant all the way through the year. Yeah, it's it's
2: mad. I mean, I stand by what I said at the start of the year. It's um, You know, frustration made me voice my opinion really early when I should have maybe stayed calm, but it's... It's mad, you know, the the difference in speed, and um, I uh, I don't know. I need to really look hard to see how many times you pass me or someone right in the braking area, but generally it's been you know down the straight passing one or two guys at the same time, and I um, you know I've had it in the past where we've lost you know fourteen hundred RPM in a season when they change the regulations and. That was tough, but 250 RPM is absolute peanuts. You know, the people that are on the defensive are you know, guys inside Ducati. but yes, if you speak with you know, people, in, knowledgeable people inside the paddock, they they know, they know that what we're racing against, other riders, manufacturers. But in saying that, it's not the complete package. It's a fast bike right now and, you know, Chaz is really one of the top riders in the championship and he's still dialing the bike in, so, Seems like yes, yeah, it's, it's in the early stages. But um, I feel like, as a real package, we have top package. But we just miss the speed they have. I'm sure if you give us uh, whatever the horsepower difference is, we would run into our own problems. But um, you know, I was just calling it as I see it, and you know, it's um, depends what we what what your point of view is, how you how you want to view it. But um, from my seat, you know, it's just very demoralizing. You know, throwing the kitchen sink at it and just
0: losing free time on the streets. The other side of that as well, this season was a year we went back to Suzuka again, this time with the whole KRT squad. And that was probably one of the, well, it was one of the craziest races anyone can remember. But up until those last 30 seconds, that was probably one of the best performances we've seen from anyone at Suzuka because yourselves the Yamaha, the Honda, all really closely matched, but fast in different ways. I think the Yamahas were faster in the pits than you, but you were faster on the track and different things like that. And, it was just, and then Honda was a lot faster in the pits than everyone else. Yeah. But it was interesting just to see a different side of racing as well.
2: Yeah, it was um, It was an awesome race. It's a race that I sort of, it's a love-hate race because it's so brutal. And the strategy this year with Kawasaki was two riders. So to go back to back pretty much for, four hours, it's tough. Um, Leon was pretty sick going into the race and I knew that he was just struggling a little bit, uh, especially them last 10, 15 minutes of his session. he just come as well from, I think, a broken wrist in his arm, maybe. Um, so he, had, um, he was not firing in all cylinders um, and um, just seemed like the last 10 minutes of his stint, when he was right there, he just lost that you know, second and a half or second and, you know, every time I got on the bike, it was first catching that gap to Yamaha, who had a pretty well-balanced team. Um, And then the Honda as well, which, um, you know, they were very strong, but they had the two-rider strategy and, you know, it didn't pay off for them in the end because they double-stinted Takahashi and, um, but, yeah, you know, to give Kawasaki their first win, in 26 years, was incredible. all be under the controversy we had, you know, crashing on the oil. Never an endurance racing seen such confusion from the organizers because uh, they made the wrong call. And um, according to the regulation, and you know, the wrong guy stood on the podium. I wish had stood on the podium, but um, it was confusion. You know, straight away they should have threw a, a pace car out there. I think they assumed that you know a few guys had got through there on skid and just let the race run that extra lap. That it would take to to call it a race, um, a, a pace car or a red flag should have been came so early because there was no racing left. I think I had about fifteen or eighteen seconds at that stage, and um, yeah, it was it was a tough one emotionally because we completely accepted the the ruling pretty much, and I left the paddock in a way that one of the one of the Japanese technicians says we're gonna win and we're gonna fight to win this race. I thought, well, it's not the way you kind of wanna win, but we did it. You know, everyone seen that we deserved to win, that was watching, and then uh, we were back at the hotel, just, you know, accepting the no trophy, and I got the phone call, so it was sort of more euphoric getting that phone call, because you'd kind of accept it, not winning, and then getting it was mad. It was super cool.
0: And you mentioned there about Leon's injury, actually forgot about that as well. I was from the Laguna crash for him, so it was only yeah. like two weeks later you were on Suzuka. And Obviously, at the time, everyone was looking at it and thinking, like, why isn't Toprak getting a chance? And we've seen over the course of the summer and obviously last time out in Magnet Course, just about how big of a step toprak has been able to make. You know, when you look at him through this season, he's gone from being one of those riders of a lot of potential to suddenly being one of your big rivals as well. Yeah,
2: I mean, he... Um I always respect the decisions inside the team and it was it was cool for him to go there and get that experience. Um, I was gutted for him when he didn't get selected in the race run, I, you know, but team decision. I sent him some messages explaining that the year I was there in 07 with HRC, I was in a team with, um, you know there was a two rider, two bike team with uh, Okada, Tozlan, Cheka and Kianari, and I was faster than all the riders apart from Kianari, and I didn't get selected. And I was gutted, I was a, I think, 19-year-old kid that was couldn't understand why I never got selected. And there, there was more to it, you know, it's an endurance race. Luckily, we got the result that that decision paid off, and you can justify it, but Top Rack was fast that weekend, but um, there was also a lot more behind the scenes that, um, that I understand why the decision was made. Um, so I think his deflection to Yamaha had been made before that as well. Um, so um, you know he's he's a good guy and in superbike now he's he's a real challenge. Looks like he's really getting the best out of the Kawasaki, riding it in a good way. Um, so let's see um, you know how you can throw a season together. But he's
0: he's been um, he's certainly been one of the the real revelations of 19. Toprak one of those riders that's gone down a fairly similar path to you as well, where off a 600 as quick as possible, I think you were on a superbike when you were 18 in BSB or 19, and when you look at a lot of riders in the superbike class, they stayed on 600s or they went through the Grand Prix paddock and they tried different things, but there's only a handful of riders that tried to switch really early in their career I think Alex Lowes did the same he was about 19 whenever he went on to Superbike for the first yeah. time And do you think is that a big impact now that on a rider like Top Rack just to have yeah. four years experience on a thousand definitely because there's so much learning to do but you got to do it
2: you got to almost sacrifice your first years as learning years and not get too far ahead of yourself remain trying to remain uninjured you know if I could talk to my 19 year old self I would have just said we can you know and you gotta be very fortunate to keep getting opportunities like I did because you do a lot of crashing learning and racking up damage bills as well is tough. You know, it's something that Top Rack hasn't. He's managed to curve, you know, he's managed to stay pretty healthy through his rookie years. And, um, you know, I expected, I actually expected him to win earlier than he did because watching his level in Superstock, you know, being a Kawasaki guy, he rode that bike so so well and, um, I was a big fan, and when he moved to Superbike, I was always a helping hand. And um, yes, yeah, he just didn't gel that quickly with things. And um, it seems like the partnership between him and Phil Marin working really good. And um, that little family atmosphere he had inside Pacetti was working. The bikes clearly, you know, it's, they have pretty much the same bike as us, except someone puts their engines together not us and um, yeah I think uh, yeah, it's nice to see him do well of course now you know, he's beat us straight up in manicure and that was tough but uh, you know I can be happy for him as well because you know, he's gonna be the guy that's the world champion in the next years so I can hopefully I can delay that as
0: long as possible. Yeah. You mentioned the relationship he has with his crew chief that is one of the key things for any rider like we've seen yourself you've worked with Chris Pike when you were with Kate, and now with Parariba at Kawasaki and different riders need different things some riders need to be brought in a singular alley and told this is how you're going to set the bike up this is how it's going to work and other riders need hug around the shoulders and be told you know they can do X, Y and Z Yeah. but how important is it to develop that relationship over time?
2: Um, very important I knew because my relationship with Chris from the outside he was one of the only let's say outsiders that I had inside 10K you know, and they were a team that just had their own engineers and once I had him there as a real trust figure that I was able to make good steps I had my best season there probably in 14 I finished third in the championship but when I came to Kawasaki it was like I felt like I was coming to the team to Tom's team I'd heard so much from Tom about his crew chief and uh, about his electronic guy and I felt if I'm going to go here I need to I need to work hard and make my crew amazing, you know. There was no chance I could bring Chris with me, so I was starting from zero. And What I found is, you know, from the outside it looked like I was joining the B team, but without doubt it was the A team, you know. Really, motorsport it's a mechanical game, but humans still make the difference. And uh, you can see it no more so than in MotoGP right now with Mark and what he has with his guys. The trust you have, the ambience inside the team on good and bad days is unreal. I mean, um, you know, so lucky to come across them guys because it was a ready-built team. The, the structures stayed the same. And um, it's a uh, really nice feeling. And that's,
0: that's what brings you the last bit of time. There's a lot that's said about mm-hmm. why teams like KRT are successful, why teams like Mark VDS and Moto2 with all their championships, why IO is successful with, like, Moto3 or 125 riders and different things like that. And Kawasaki's always seemed to be very linear, you're going to have to do these things for your training, you're going to have to be this weight, you're going to have to do X, Y and Z, you're going to have to have your motorhome, your cabin, whatever it is at the racetrack, you need to have, like for you it's fab as your rider coach, you need to have Kev as your assistant, you need to have all these things sort of boxed off, like how important is it just to have that sort of structure in place?
2: Well, you know, I brought a lot of that stuff to the team, you know, when I first mentioned I was bringing an assistant, they were like, why, why do you need an assistant? And, um, you know, Kev was with me for years and years, and I think after a few races, they gave Tom the kick up the ass and told him he had to get an assistant. They were sick of doing all those jobs for him. Uh, and then with the rider-coach thing, it was the same the same deal, really. It's just hard to, you know, when you work in a team of, I don't know, 40 staff, everybody involved has to have a role, or they shouldn't be there. And So having, trying to define that role, with Fabian being the rider-coach, or Kev being my assistant, the team take that on board and um, but it's a very structured team well I'm very lucky because you know in previous teams I've been with didn't really matter if I went off and you know for example lived the the playboy lifestyle if you like or the the rock star or whatever I went home and just been a hermit and sat on my ass watching Netflix they invest in the person the athlete and they you know I never had control of my life more than now and at at the start it was i felt quite it was quite invasive is that the word and where once you sort of trust Um, it in the process and realize mm -hmm. that now that Mm -hmm. it's not like checking up and trying to mold you it's they're trying to help you be the best you can possibly be so you know i'm very lucky in that because most teams just they trust you're doing the right thing but i have all the tools around me to to be the best I can never be, and that makes a huge difference.
0: Obviously now as well, five titles on your own, more wins than anyone, more polls, more podiums, like you've made yourself into pretty much the best superbike rider of all time as well, statistically. Like, where does that mean for you in terms of when you, obviously you've still got a lot of other goals to meet, you've got another year left in your contract, probably another contract after that, so there's still like a lot for you still to achieve. But when you look back now and you think like, Jesus, 10 years ago. You're happy to pick up your first win, yeah. you know, and different things like that. Yeah,
2: it it is a bit like that, and um, but it's hard. Once in this competitive bubble, you never look at the outside and stop and take stock of where you are, um, and it's a you're always looking at the next challenge. You just stop in, like France after winning the championship, and you already think to Argentina, and then you think to next year. It's almost a case of just ticking boxes, but you know, there's times where. You know, I moved back to Northern Ireland last year and bought myself a dream home. And we have a, you know, home cinema bar area that sometimes, you know, I sit in there and I've got my world championship trophies and I'm just so satisfied. I feel really proud of what I've done. And you think, what what more can I do? How can I keep going and just achieving the same thing? Because it's no better or worse, really. Um, But the biggest... The biggest thing is, I'm just so happy doing it, and I don't know anything else. And I think until the lack of motivation comes, or the struggle, or an injury, or the the lack of being competitive, I'm gonna keep doing it for as long as I can because it really doesn't feel like work. Um, it's only you know when now I have a family with two kid, two young kids, it changes the dynamic a little bit because. Um, it's not just racing motorbikes to your 40 years of age, like the, the retirement age, if you like. It's more, as soon as I stop enjoying this and it's not worth it, the sacrifice you make to be away from your home team, to, to go through injuries, to do whatever, that's the time to, to hang up my boots. But I, I, can't, I can't see it happening anytime soon because I'm actually really having a lot of fun. And I, I feel like I can still be competitive as well for a few more years.
0: I was actually I was writing something for David Emmett just about the comparison between yourself and Marquez and like we saw Mark able to win this World Championship last week and it was more important for him to beat Quateraro than to win the World Championship. And we saw the same from you and Magni Corr on the Friday, where in tricky conditions we saw a lot of riders just roll a few laps and different things like that, but it looked like you really wanted to assert yourself and led to a crash obviously in the free practice session but you came back out in the races then that weekend and really focused on making sure you could get the championship won.
2: Yeah, it's um, I mean, it's hard to compare what I'm doing with Mark, because I look at him as um, you know, the most skilled rider there's ever been and ever really will be, because I can't see too many kids coming now that can step up and beat him. Um, but I don't know, I, I feel like, just I just want to be fast all the time and um, I know how to be fast I know what feels good to be fast but the we're very lucky in motorbikes because you always you've been unless you're going to a new track you kind of know the reference and you try and get there as fast as possible and in the wet you know my wet record's been pretty good I understand how the bike should be now with this, this Kawasaki and yeah I was just pushing the boundaries but now I can laugh at that. Before I used to crash, it would dim my confidence a bit. Or I would start thinking about the money involved in the crash and how much damage I caused. But now I kind of laugh and think, well, that was the limit there. So I was doing nothing stupid. I was just pushing hard and that's not a crime. So as long as it doesn't happen too much in the races, that's, uh, that's the main thing.
0: It's like rental cars. The First time you crash a rental car and you have to pay the 50 quid for the access. Well, you know like what? Well,
2: I think I've done, um, how long have I been racing now? 2009 in the World Championship. and I've never took the extra insurance in a rental car. So the amount of money I've saved, I'm sure I could pay the full whack of the insurance. No problem, so it's been basic insurance for me the whole time.
0: Well, what I would always recommend is car hire access do it for like 100 quid a year worldwide. And anytime that you have any damage on the car, then it's all covered with that. Right. And I've had a couple of times where I needed to use the excess. Well, I know so. here there's a lot of damage in cars already. <laughs> the roads are terrible. So. I'm not too sure if most of it's down to the roads being terrible. I've seen a fair few lads off road. Thinking they're Dakar racing. riders. <laughs> <laughs> just when you just to wrap up as well, Johnny. Obviously, like you've won your five championships. You mentioned there, about Mark, obviously, he's won his eight. But. Marquez is now looking back at other riders thinking Oof, Alex Rins has given me a good run of times this year he's beaten him in a straight up fight Quattararo is obviously coming for him as well there's a young rider that always looks at who the reference is and learns from them they're able to try and push themselves to get to Marquez's level top rack coming this year or different riders that can come through Like it looks like you're going to have to it gets harder and harder to stay at the top and you're yeah. going to have to really work hard on that
2: yeah, no, it really does, um, and you know, there's there's not just one rider you can put your your finger on. Year to year, things change, um, and I think right now in superbike, also the manufacturers are quite different. You know, different manufacturers have different strengths, uh, different riders have different strengths, and I can, you're standing from the outside, and you can see all that and take it in and try and react yourself. But what's exciting for next year is it's it's another sort of year where you throw the cards up because you got you know young kid like uh, Top right going to um, Yamaha, you know, a completely different bike. Um, not sure if it's gonna exactly fit his uh, riding style straight away, but he's honestly the most naturally gifted guy I've seen here for a while, so he'll figure it out quick. Bautista going to an unknown Honda, uh, with a new project that sounds super duper, but no one's seen it yet. Um, you know, Scott Redding's coming from BSB to um, Superbike, and the official of the caddy team and, and I have a new teammate as well so there's a lot of shifting around and that's that brings excitement and anticipation but we'll just prepare the way we normally do and I feel like I've got all the tools now and I've I've had a championship that's been different to the rest where I've had to come from behind. So mentally I'll be prepared to take on whatever. Just hope I have the I have the people around me. I just hope
0: we have the tools around me to, to do it week in, week out. Yeah, for me, like, I've looked at this here and I've said it a few times that this is probably the best season we've seen from you to come back behind, to show the strength to still be able to focus on the job at hand, but more than anything else, just to finish second so often. Like, you're used to winning and to be able to have the strength to realise, like, I can't win today, just finish second. How, is that the way you'd look at the season as well? Yeah, but I feel like that's normal. I,
2: I think you're kind of stupid by... Like, I would struggle to look work with a rider that would throw a second away when he could just finish second. When it was clear the other guy was so far ahead, you you can't just get on the bike and magically find three tenths a lap and end up in your hole. You know, you have to think, right, today we're racing for second, try and do that. And um, so, whilst I'm happy to take a pat on the back for doing that, I felt like it was the logical thing to do anyway. Um, But yeah, just building championships this year's give given me more hope than ever that you know if times are tough to keep with it and hopefully that can inspire other people not just in sport but in life as well in tough times that we just keep looking to the next day because you never know what's around the corner and um, yeah for me you know I've been written off so much at the start of the year and to get now is, is mad
0: alright well thanks for joining us on the podcast Johnny and best of luck this weekend cheers Steve